You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. It's so good to be here with you today. We are currently in the middle of a series here with our reality Ohana on the miracles of Jesus. And this morning we are going to be in my favorite of the four Gospels, the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 9. John chapter 9. This is a story that is very dear to my heart Uh, when we were talking about this series and which miracles to include. um, There's so many good stories. This is one that I specifically asked uh, for the honor of being able to teach through. So John chapter 9, this is the story of a man who is blind from birth who has an encounter with Jesus. It's a beautiful story. So read with me John 9, 1 through 7. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered, but that the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground, made mud with his saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the opportunity we have as brothers and sisters in Christ to come together and hear the stories of Jesus. And I pray that this morning um, we would have an encounter with you and we would begin to see you in new ways, in deeper ways, and that we would fall more in love with you. Amen. All right, so I'd like to start by setting up the scene a little bit for us of this story. This story takes place in the city of Jerusalem at the end of a major Jewish holiday, which is called the Festival of Booths. So by our calendar, that means the story is taking place in late September, early October. It also means that the city of Jerusalem is absolutely packed with Jews from all around the Roman Empire who are traveling, pilgrimaging to Jerusalem to be here for this festival. And what you're seeing on the screen, this is a model that was made of Herod's temple. This is what um, it probably looked like in the first century. It was absolutely massive. And to give you a sense of the scale, because this picture doesn't do it justice, it was said that the outer courts of the temple could hold a quarter of a million people. And in a festival like this, a major, major festival, it would have been totally, totally packed with people. Uh, Fun fact, this is just a side note, Um, in Acts, uh, the early church, some of their first gatherings were actually held in these, those colonnades on the outside of the temple, those pillared porches, it's where the early church met um, in the first chapters of Acts. 
So when the story of John 9 opens, Jesus has just been teaching in the temple, in the inner uh, courtyard of the temple, and he is leaving. He is on his way out. And not to get into John chapter 8, but the reason he is leaving is because people have picked up stones to stone him because he has basically called himself God. And so it's a bit of a dramatic exit, but Jesus is leaving the temple, and as he leaves the temple, he passes by a man who was born blind. And Jesus takes notice of this man. Verse 1, it says, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Now, because of the conditions in the ancient world uh, of poverty, the living situation, the lack of modern medicine, um, ailments and afflictions like blindness were a lot more common than anything we would see today in, in the United States. So it's actually a fairly common affliction. And also, unfortunately, in this society, there wasn't a lot of infrastructure to support or take care of those with disabilities. And so for this man, really his only option for making a living was to beg. And this is most likely what he's doing when Jesus takes notice of him. Now, the temple was the primary place that people in Jerusalem would come to beg uh, for a couple of reasons. One, you're going to be seen by a lot of people. It's just a public place. A lot of people are coming by. There's more chances that someone is going to show you compassion. But on top of that, the people that are coming by, they are coming to worship God. And so chances are they are going to be feeling a little bit more charitable, a little bit more generous, Uh, maybe even want to look charitable and generous to the people around them as they head into the temple to worship God. So very common place to find um, beggars. And the disciples decide this is the perfect opportunity to ask Jesus a philosophical question. So verse 2, Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or the sins of his parents. Now, can you imagine having just total access to Jesus at all times? You know, for three years, the disciples are just traveling with Jesus. You can ask him your toughest questions, the thing you've always wanted to know. Um, Yeah, just this amazing resource. So I'm sure they asked him these kind of questions all the time. So the disciples asked this question, why was the man born blind? Is it his sin or his parents' sin? And this question is really, really fascinating because... The whole question is based on this giant assumption, right? What is the assumption the disciples are making? What are they assuming to be true? Someone sinned. In fact, they're so confident that someone's sin has caused this ailment uh, that it's not even up for debate. They just build it into their question. Uh, The only thing they're confused about is whose sin is it, this man or his parents? So what I want to talk about a little bit is this perspective the disciples had, because what they just revealed is in their worldview, sickness is caused by a corresponding sin. If you are sick, someone has sinned to cause this. Now, this is actually not surprising at all, because this was the common view of the day. The common view of the day, um, not just in Israel, but around the ancient world. It was also the common view throughout Israel's history. And this view is something called the retribution principle. The retribution 
principle. This was the dominant worldview of the day. It was the dominant worldview throughout Israel's history, and it was the dominant worldview of the ancient world. And it is still held by many, many people today of all religions. What is the retribution principle? Uh, to put it simply, the retribution principle says the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer. In other words, people will get what they deserve. That's the, that's the view. If people do what's right, they will prosper, they'll have happy families, they'll have good finances, uh, their business will do well, whatever your definition of, of flourishing. And the wicked, those who do what's wrong or evil, they will experience hardship, whether that's sickness or finances, um, they're going to struggle. Now this can also be flipped around. So if you hold this view and you see someone who is suffering, what is it that you connect in your mind? They must be someone who is wicked. Otherwise, they wouldn't go through this hardship. Um, and on the flip side, if you are prospering and things are going well for you, you must be in the favor of God, right? So this impacts the way you view the world pretty significantly if you hold to this view. Um, Craig Keener, in his commentary on John, writes that the Jewish literature of the day encouraged anyone who saw a blind, lame, or otherwise seriously afflicted person to praise God as the righteous judge. In other words, they must have gotten what they deserve. Um, it's not just Israel or the ancient world that holds this belief. It's very common today. Um, one of David and I's favorite countries that we've had the privilege of visiting is the country of Nepal. It's a beautiful, beautiful country, beautiful people. And in Nepal, about 80% of the Nepalese people are practicing Hindus. And in the Hindu religion, they have sort of their own version of the retribution principle, right? It's something called karma. That's become a popular phrase, something called karma. So in Nepal, uh, if you saw a, a person who was suffering, you would assume what? they have committed some sin or wrongdoing in a past life. And in some places, uh, not always, but in some places in the Hindu system, it's actually discouraged from intervening to relieve suffering because in your worldview, this is actually appropriate. We don't want to interfere with karma. We don't want to interfere with what is meant to be. So you guys can see how this is adopted. Um, and it's also just sort of seeped its, seeps its way into the way we just think about the world. So even casually, uh, you know, we'll say things like, you know, if things go really well, we might say, oh, I must have done something right. Or if something goes wrong, what do we say? Oh, what did I do to deserve this? Right? We have this sort of system in our minds, even if we wouldn't say it you know, explicitly. Um, it also makes its way into our pop culture. So to illustrate this, uh, I have a a screenshot from a very famous movie. Does anyone know what movie this is? Sound of Music, oh, one of the greatest movies of all time in my humble opinion. Um, if you like musicals, even if you don't, it's a great film. Um, so yes, this is a love scene. It's also they're singing a song because it is a musical. And not to ruin this beautiful moment or this beautiful song, uh, but the lyrics to this song are essentially the retribution principle. And I'm gonna read to you some of the lyrics. Um, I was teasing with David that I was going to perform this song for you using my best Julie Andrews-like accent, but um, that would be embarrassing for me and a disservice to you, so I will not be doing that. Um, <clears throat> I will not be doing that. 
it's not happening. Um, but I was singing it all day yesterday. Um, so if you know the song, these are the lyrics. She says, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. For here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Now, of course, it's a song and it's beautiful and I don't want to ruin it. But that's the retribution principle, essentially. If something good comes your way, you deserve it. If something bad comes your way, you deserve it. And I think it's easy to see why this worldview is very appealing. It's actually very attractive. Because as humans, what do we want to do? We want to make sense of the world. And we want to make sense of suffering. And a system like this is very simple. It's very neat. It makes sense to us. It's orderly. And so it's not surprising that humans really gravitate to this sort of karma, retribution, principle worldviews. So this is the worldview the disciples are operating under. So when they see this man who has been blind from birth, their question is not, did someone sin? In their minds, someone did. Their question is, who did it? Who sinned? Now, why would this man particularly present that dilemma to them? What detail do we know about this man that would kind of throw a wrench in their retribution principle? He was blind from birth. So you can see how that trips them up. They're like, well, how can the retribution principle be working? Because are you saying that this man sinned before he was even born? Or maybe it was his parents' sin, but in that case, that's not justice if he's suffering for his parents' sin. So they really think they're asking Jesus this highly intelligent question. And let's look at just the first response, the first part of Jesus' response in John 9.3. Jesus responds to them and says, it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. Um, have any of you guys ever been in a classroom setting and you are convinced that you have just come up with the most brilliant and intelligent question that is going to impress your professor or your teacher to no end and it's just going to reveal how yeah, enlightened you are. And then you ask and then your teacher starts to answer and immediately you know that not only was this not a great question, but it just revealed that you, you don't know what you're talking about. That has happened to me before. Um, it's never fun. And I imagine that's kind of what's happening here. I think the, the disciples really thought they're asking a good question. Um, and, and Jesus responds by saying, not only are both your options wrong, your entire question is wrong. The assumption that your question is built off is wrong. This man's sin did not cause his blindness. This man's parents' sin did not cause his blindness. And in one sentence, Jesus dismantles this entire system of theology around suffering. Um, he does it in just a few words. Now, we don't know for sure if this blind man was close enough to actually hear Jesus' response, but can you imagine what it would have felt like to hear someone say that probably for the first time in your life? That this thing that you have suffered with your entire life is not a sign that God is angry with you. It is not a sign that God has rejected you or abandoned you. And it's also not something that you should feel shame about. Um, that would have been an incredibly powerful moment for this man. So just in this one statement, Jesus sort of dismantles this system of retri the retribution principle. Now, is this the first time in the Bible that this knowledge has been taught? Is, this, is Jesus kind of dropping fresh knowledge that's never been heard of before in the Bible or taught in the Bible? No. 
Um, in fact, there is an entire book of the Bible that is dedicated to this idea. It's everyone's favorite book. We love to meditate on it. Zach knows which one I'm talking about. We love to meditate on it in our quiet times. It's the book of Job. It's the book of Job. It's a very long book. Um, Job is a story about a righteous man who suffers. And when everything falls apart, his three buddies show up. And in the text, it says that they come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And for the first seven days, they do a really good job. They sit with him, they weep with him, and they don't say a word for seven days. At the end of seven days, they start talking. And when they start talking, they don't really stop talking for a very long time. So they talk from chapter 3 of Job to chapter 31 of Job. So they have a lot to say. And when they start talking, you realize these three friends of Job's are firm believers in the retribution principle. And in their minds, the only possible explanation for Job's suffering is what? He has sinned. Job, you must not be as righteous as you think you are, because we know that this principle is true, therefore you have sinned. Um, look at the words of Eliphaz, one of Job's friends. Um, this is in chapter 4, uh, 7 and 8. He says, remember, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So you can hear echoes of this, this retribution principle. Now, he gets a little bit more aggressive later on in the book in chapter 22, verse 5. This is what Eliphaz says to Job. He says, is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquity. So, so much for coming to show sympathy and comfort. They've really given up on that. Um, and now Eliphaz is just trying to get Job to admit, admit some wrongdoing. But if you guys have read the story of Job, you know how it ends. And are Job's friends right in the end? They are not. And in fact, in the end of Job, in the final chapter, Job 42, 7, God weighs in on the matter. And what does he say to the friends? He says, you have not spoken the truth about me. In other words, this system you have, this retribution principle you have, it does not fully explain the complexities of suffering in your world. It's too simple. It's too cut and dry. Is there some truth to it? Absolutely. Um, the Bible teaches, and we know from our experiences, that our actions have consequences, right? And, and many times in our life, we do experience suffering because of our own behaviors, and usually we know when that occurs. Um, same thing is true of when we walk in honesty and we're hardworking, right? So there is a sense, a very general sense, where this principle is true, but it does not account for all suffering. So let's, let's finish uh, Jesus's answer. How does Jesus answer after he dismisses this principle? Jesus answered, but that the power of God could be seen in him. I shall start from the beginning. We'll read it again. It was not because of his sin or his parents' sins. Jesus answered, but that the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. There's a few interesting things about Jesus' answer that I want to just highlight for us this morning. The first is that Jesus shifts the disciples' attention from the past to the future. Do you guys notice that? So the disciples are looking to the past, and they're saying, what's the cause? What's the reason? Is it him? Is it his parents? 
And Jesus sort of shifts their attention from looking backward to find a cause, and he shifts their attention to the future, to what God is going to do through this man, and how the glory and the power of God is going to be displayed in this man. So we see that shift. Not only that, but we see Jesus using this illustration. This is one that he uses often about the day and the night. Jesus says, we must do the works of the Father while it is day. Now that's a metaphor, it's an illustration for while we are alive. Jesus is talking about the time left in his life while he is still on earth. And there's an urgency there to not just talk about this man's suffering, but to actually do something about it, to do the works of the Father. I'm assuming that Jesus knows that this is one of the last times he will be in the city of Jerusalem. Um, within six months of this story taking place, Jesus would be crucified. So if it's September, October, by the following spring, March, April, um, is when his life on earth will end. And he knows this, and so he talks about how there's this brief window to do the works of God. And so you see Jesus is really uninterested in this philosophical question about suffering as much as actually taking action in this man's life and showing how his life and his suffering can be used to show the power of God. And notice the word we in this passage. Um, Jesus says, we must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us. And I think that's interesting that Jesus includes his disciples into that, that work, right? He says, hey, it's not just me. Join me in the work of the Father and what he has to do here on earth. It's not just my task, it's our task. I'm including you. And then he ends this passage with a really famous statement, I am the light of the world. In the Gospel of John, there are seven of these I am statements about who Jesus is. And usually in John, they are accompanied by a sign, a literal physical sign that demonstrates the statement. So for example, in a couple of chapters from now, in the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead, Jesus will make the statement, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he will raise Lazarus from the dead. So the sign kind of illustrates the title. And of course, this is exactly what's happening here. He says, I am the light of the world, and what is he about to do? He's about to take a man who his whole life has been in darkness, complete darkness, and for the first time, he's gonna see light. He's gonna open his eyes to light. And so this miracle, yes, it's about the individual man, but also it's demonstrating the identity of Jesus, that he is the light of the world. And so the title and the miracle are linked. All right, this is where things get a little strange. Let's keep reading, verses six and seven. Then he spit on the ground, making mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. That's odd, it's strange. Um, I've been around a lot of people who are being prayed for for healing or people who are praying for others for healing, and I have never once seen anyone try and duplicate this method of healing. Um, so obviously it's not something that we feel super comfortable with mimicking of Jesus. Um, weirdly enough, Jesus uses saliva in, I think it's three total of his miracles, two in Mark, uh, once to heal a blind man like this, and then another to heal a man who is deaf and mute. 
So uh, the question, of course, is what is Jesus doing? Uh, why does he choose this specific way to heal this man? And there's a lot of discussion about it. And the short, honest answer is I have no idea. I mean, truly, like, I'm not going to stand up here and pretend I have this revelation to give you. Like, I'm, I am going to tell you two theories that I think are pretty good. Um, but just to be honest, like, no one really knows why Jesus does this. Uh, so just total transparency here. Um, but there were two theories that I thought were really interesting. The first one is this idea that maybe Jesus is um, not mimicking, but that Jesus is alluding backward to the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, the translation that I chose, it has the word mud, but some of your translations might use the word clay. That's actually the word that's used. He, he makes clay out of the saliva and the the dirt, and puts it on the man's eyes. It's the same word clay that Paul uses in Romans where he talks about God is the potter shaping the clay. And so some people think that as Jesus, he's actually in an act of creation here. He's creating sight. He's creating new eyes for this man. And it's supposed to make you think of Yahweh in the garden, making Adam out of the clay. And I actually think there's some evidence for this later on in the story, because later in the chapter when the healed blind man is being questioned and really drilled by the religious leaders, he says this in verse 32. He says, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. So he basically is saying like, never since creation have we seen something like this. So he is sort of alluding back to that creation moment with the clay, so maybe. Um, Another theory is that Jesus is doing this healing in this way intentionally to rile up the religious leaders. As we find out later in the story, this healing happened on what day of the week? Jesus loves to do his healings on the most controversial day, which is Sabbath. And part of me thinks maybe he waited. He's like, oh, I could heal this guy, you know, the day before Sabbath, or I could wait till Sabbath and really stir things up. So he heals this man on Sabbath, which you guys may or may not know, but in the Jewish customs, it was not allowed to be healed on Sabbath. And Jesus obviously did not like this rule at all, and so he purposefully, and we can say that, he purposefully healed people on the Sabbath. Now what you probably don't know is that uh, there's some early traditions that suggests that not only were you not allowed to heal on the Sabbath, but spitting in the ground was also prohibited. And you might be thinking to yourself, why would spitting on the ground be prohibited? The logic is, if you spit on the ground, you've made mud. Mud is used in mortar. You have just made mortar. You have just worked. So you have broken Sabbath. So is it possible that Jesus is intentionally using a way of healing that just gets the religious leaders angry, which is what is going to happen in the rest of John 9? Possibly. So these are two interpretations of why we have such a unique uh, healing experience. But the short answer is, honestly, I have no idea. Um, there is this really interesting quote uh, from Jewish writings that dates after this miracle. So after Jesus performed this miracle. And look at what it says. It's so interesting. It says, to heal a blind man on the Sabbath is prohibited. That's very detailed. It also is prohibited to make mud with spit and smear it on his eyes. Well, that sounds a lot like John 9, almost as if the Jewish leaders put in writing, hey, what Jesus did that day, we don't want you to do. 
Um, I can't think of another reason why this would be in such detail in Jewish writings later on in history. Now, Jesus predicted that this man's life would display the power of God, and it does. First, through his physical healing. Um, Jesus uses this man as an opportunity to display his power by doing something that cannot be explained. But the power of God is also displayed in this man's life. Um, Because after this moment, this man becomes a walking testimony, right? He becomes a walking miracle. And wherever he goes for the rest of his life, what is the first thing that someone is going to ask him? Tell me the story. Tell me about the day that you encountered Jesus and you went from darkness to light, from being blind to being able to see. And the story is going to be told over and over and over again. Um, I would submit to you that most people in the city of Jerusalem, if you lived there, you knew this man on sight because he has been blind since birth, which means he has been begging in the outer courts of the temple since birth, which means that every single time you walk up those steps to pray or you walk up those steps to make a sacrifice, you have passed this man, you know him. Everyone in the city knows this man. And now that he can see, what is he going to do? He's making friends, he's re-entering society, he's getting a job, he has a family, he may have grandkids. And throughout his life, and it radiates outward, the power of God is displayed in him, not just through his healing, but through the testimony of his healing. And I would say even today, this morning, as we read his story, this man's life continues to display the power of God. Can you imagine your life having this kind of an impact? Your life uh, being one that people look at for generations and generations to come to point to and say, this is the power of God. That's a redemption story. Now, uh, I know for a fact there are people in this room who either have been through a very, very difficult time or are currently um, going through a very, very difficult time. And you may be thinking, how wonderful for that man that he received this instant, miraculous healing, right? He got a happy ending. Um, But maybe for you or for me, we just had to walk through it. We prayed for a miracle, miracle never came, and we just had to suffer through it. We just had to walk through it. Where is the power of God in that? Where is the glory of God in that? Because we all know that everyone's struggle, everyone's pain doesn't end with this moment of miraculous, instantaneous healing. And so what about for the rest of us facing pain or struggle and asking for a healing or, you know, may not even be healing, a reconciliation that never comes? And so what I want to do, and this is me pulling out of the story of John 9 because Scripture is meant to be understood as a whole, and I want to give you kind of a counterexample to the John 9 man. And this is a story of the Apostle Paul. And in the Apostle Paul's life, he talks about this mysterious thorn in his flesh. That's a metaphor. This thorn in his flesh that he suffered from in his life. And, you know, Bible scholars, historians try and figure out what would that thorn in his flesh be. And and many people think it was potentially a chronic illness. Um, They do believe it was some kind of physical ailment that he suffered from. They're not sure exactly what. And the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now, I know, theologically, God doesn't play favorites, 
But if you're like me, you're thinking, if anyone could have God intervene on their behalf for a miracle, it would be the Apostle Paul, right? Like, no one can say he doesn't have enough faith. No one can say he didn't pray in the right way. This is the Apostle Paul pleading with the Lord three times, take this from me. And after the third time Paul prayed, Jesus spoke to him, and this is what he said. This is in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. Jesus says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I want to highlight for you guys that the outcome is the same in the story of the blind man and the story of Paul. One is delivered, the other has to walk through it, but the result for both of them is the power of God is being displayed in them. So, uh, in our last minutes, what are we pulling from John 9? What truths are we pulling from this story? There's many, many things we could say. Um, I'm going to share with you three that have personally impacted me. And I think I say this every time, but please know the things I'm going to share with you are things that I need to apply. These are things that I need to understand in my life. Um, so they're, they're as much for me as for all of us. The first truth I think we learn uh, from this story is that for the believer, there is no pain without purpose. There is no pain without purpose. Um, I understand that the topic of suffering is a massive, massive topic. And this short sermon is not enough time to do this topic justice or to unpack it. But I would love if we walked away with this truth on our hearts and on our minds. For the believer, there is no pain without purpose. The promise of Scripture is that it actually does not matter what you are facing God is big enough to redeem, restore, transform that into something that displays his power, that displays his goodness. Um, whether or not you're delivered from it miraculously or you have to walk through it. Uh, the, the best example of this, of course, is the story of Joseph. You know, he's betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery enters Egypt in chains, he experiences oppression, he experiences imprisonment, and there is no doubt that what his brothers did to him would be classified as evil, absolutely evil. And yet, what does he say at the end of that experience, Genesis 50, 20, he says, you plotted evil against me, but God turned it to good. And that is a promise of scripture that we can hold on to. A second, this is huge, sin is not always the cause of suffering. Can it be? Yes, you know, our, our actions do have consequences. And, and normally we know, right? When we're experiencing something, we're like, yeah, I, I pretty much brought this upon myself. So it can be, but it is not always. And this is a really dangerous belief. And so my encouragement for you is that if you are experiencing something difficult and the thought pops into your mind, God must have abandoned me. God is far from me. Uh, you know, what did I do wrong? Um, I just want to remind you, first, sin is not always the cause of suffering, right? We live in a fallen world, but also that God is near to the brokenhearted. He is near to you in your suffering. He has not abandoned you. And so the problem with this belief is it, it makes you feel like you're distant from God, that he's turned away from you, and that couldn't be further from the truth. God draws near to those who are in pain and those who suffer. 
And then finally, third, as uh, disciples of Jesus, we are called to join the works of the Father. You know, the disciples wanted to have a philosophical discussion about suffering. You know, they wanted to sort of look at this blind man and talk about him, and talk about his past, and talk about his history. And there is a time and place for discussion, there's a time and place for conversation, but at a certain point, you just need to get down to doing the works of the Father. In this case, acts of compassion for people who are suffering. And for each of us, we don't know how much time we have on earth. We don't know how long our day is before night falls. And the message of John 9 is let's join Jesus in these works of compassion. And let's alleviate suffering wherever we see it. And point people to a compassionate God. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up um, and transition us into a time of worship. And as we do... Um, I do want to read to you one final passage. Uh, again, anytime we talk about suffering, it's like, it's such a big topic, and it, it's, it's complex, and it's heavy. Um, but I do want to end with this, this passage because it clearly states that suffering is not the final word, right? If we're believers, suffering does not get the final word because if you know the end of the story, you know that it ends in restoration, and the end of the story, there is no more pain, there is no more sickness, there is no more suffering. And so we look forward to the end of this story. And Paul sums it up so beautifully, um, and so I'll read his words for us. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, and the perspective of this is really powerful. Uh, Paul says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. You know, our, our body might be wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Uh, pray with me, and we'll, we'll close. Jesus, we love you so much, and I just thank you for this picture of compassion that we see in, in this story of of John, and we see Jesus displaying not just his power, but his love and his compassion. And I ask for, for each of us in this room that we would look to you and trust you, that we would leave with a greater assurance of your love and a greater assurance of your compassion for us. And especially I want to lift up those who are in a time of trouble and hardship even now, God. Um, that they would hold on to that knowledge that you are near to the brokenhearted. You are close to them. Your eyes are fixed on them. Your heart is turned towards them. Pray these things in your name. Amen.